lobbyists write the rules, the lobbyists write the laws, and we ended up with the media system that we have, which is a nightmare. We need to create something new in this country called independent public broadcasting. We need a public trust fund for public broadcasting. We need people to be able to divert tax money to independent nonprofit journalism. We need to break up the monopolies. And then we'd have a mixed media system and we might have an informed electorate and we might save democracy. That's Jeff Cohen, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Jeff Cohen, Break Up the Media Monopolies. Concentration of any industry is dangerous, but media concentration is particularly dangerous because of the vast influence media exert in shaping public opinion. Years ago, legendary journalist and media critic Ben Bagdikian warned of the dangers posed by media monopolies. Those warnings have been borne out. A handful of megacorporations, from Comcast to Disney, dominate the media. As Bagdikian predicted, corporate business interests would trump journalism, particularly investigative journalism, which is costly, thus cutting into corporate profits. Lack of competition allows the conglomerates to raise prices. Have you looked at your cable bill lately? Furthermore, a vibrant democracy is ill-served by a corporate media that is heavily connected to and reliant on official sources. An informed citizenry is essential for the communication needs of a democratic society. Media monopolies should be broken up. Our guest today is Jeff Cohen. He founded Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, the Media Watch Group, in 1986. He was founding director of the Park Center for Independent Media at Ithaca College, where he was an associate professor of journalism. And he co-founded the group RootsAction.org. He spoke at the Civic Media Center in Gainesville, Florida, in mid-February. And now, Jeff Cohen. I founded FAIR in 1986. We pioneered in statistical studies of who gets to speak in mainstream news outlets, who gets quoted as an expert, and who doesn't. These studies are not complicated. It's as simple as counting. In every study, whether it was who gets quoted in the front pages of the New York Times or in Washington Post, or who gets interviewed more at length on public broadcasting, NPR, PBS, there is a bias in favor of corporate voices and a bias against public interest voices, progressives, union, environmental, or peace voices. And I could uh, make it more concrete by explaining that there are many different kinds of academic think tanks in Washington, D.C., from right to left ideologically, from pro-corporate to a few that are pro-union, from a number that are very hawkish and pro-U.S. military intervention to a few that are anti-war, like the Institute for Policy Studies uh, or the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and over the decades, FAIR studies have been consistent. They show that mainstream prestige news outlets, sometimes called the corporate liberal media, these outlets consistently 
favored pro-corporate and hawkish think tank experts. And it's virtually never pointed out by the journalists or the interviewers that these very hawkish think tanks in Washington, D.C. are heavily funded by the big military contracting corporations. As fair studies have shown, these national outlets are not presenting a balanced spectrum of views in keeping with the needs of democracy or in keeping with fair journalism, but rather they're shaping discussion in pro-corporate, pro-war directions. They're shaping public opinion in those directions. I'll never forget our very first study of the public TV, PBS NewsHour. It was a six-month study of their guest list, and it found a reliance on two Washington, D.C. think tanks to the near exclusion of all others. On foreign policy, they turned repeatedly to the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a hawkish think tank, and on domestic policy, they turned over and over to the Conservative American Enterprise Institute, which is funded by some of the biggest corporations in our country. In the 1990s, when healthcare reform was a big topic in the news, National Public Radio regularly presented debates on healthcare policy that featured a former Democratic Congress member and a former Republican Congress member, so it had the semblance of balance. Both former Congress members agreed that single-payer universal health coverage, which is now called Medicare for All, it's unworkable, it's unrealistic, it's a non-starter. NPR didn't inform its listeners that both former Congress members were currently lobbyists or consultants for corporate health care interests opposed to Medicare for All. If you followed the non-debate in U.S. media about Russia's horrific invasion of Ukraine, you're hearing, as usual, from a lot of formers, former generals, former high-level CIA officials, State Department, Defense Department officials. And as a news consumer, you need to remember that most of the time when you hear some guest introduced only by their former official title, you're probably being lied to. Many of these formers who regularly discuss U.S. foreign policy are currently paid by the war industries or they work for the think tanks that are funded by the war industries. And you're not told that. It's a gentleman's agreement by which these news outlets agree only to identify people by their former titles and not by their current employment or current entanglements that might actually be more relevant information to the news consumer in weighing what these formers are saying. And I should point out in 2008, uh, the great investigative reporter David Barsamian, I'm sorry, <laughs> David Barstow, uh, he he wrote an uh, uh, article on the front page of the New York Times where he identified all of the military analysts that had been featured on the TV networks, including PBS, in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq and during the occupation of Iraq. And he not only revealed that these individuals, these formers, were getting talking points, that they were being presented as military analysts retired from the Pentagon, but they were getting talking points from the Pentagon. And perhaps more important from my point of view, 
They were connected to military contracting companies, 150 different companies where these military analysts presented as independent uh, were either consultants, lobbyists, board members, or top executives at military contractors. This story, front page with pictures of these various retired generals, front page of the New York Times, not mentioned on these networks that were criticized. He used 8,000 pages of emails and internal documents to prove his case about how these, these generals were junketed around, uh, fed the talking points, the TV networks didn't acknowledge it. And then he wins the Pulitzer Prize. And they still didn't mention it. And I remember watching a nightly news show where they reported on some of the Pulitzer Prize winners that year, but they didn't mention David Barstow, who had exposed the nightly news. For decades, the top military analyst on NBC News, MSNBC, has been former General Barry McCaffrey. McCaffrey's analysis, his predictions have been over the years consistently wrong, sometimes ridiculously wrong. He disseminated many falsehoods in pushing hard for the U.S. to invade Iraq. And then several weeks into that invasion, McCaffrey declared this on MSNBC, and I'm quoting, thank God for the Abrams tank and the Bradley fighting vehicle, unquote unknown to MSNBC viewers because they were not told. General McCaffrey sat on the boards of several military contractors, including IDT, which pocketed millions of dollars for its work on the Bradley and the Abrams. Before Russia invaded Ukraine a year ago, there were dissenting U.S. foreign policy experts who urged the Biden administration to try to avert the Ukraine war by publicly announcing that there would be a moratorium on Ukraine joining NATO, that there'd be no further expansion of NATO toward Russia's borders. These individuals did not get much airtime in US media, and these dissenters were, were arguing that they were asking us to imagine if there was a powerful military alliance in the world perhaps led by China. And every few years it was adding countries and getting closer to the US. And now they were gonna add Mexico on US border to this giant military alliance aimed at the United States. I think the US government wouldn't be too happy about it. In the run up to the invasion, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the NATO should not expand point of view was heard in mainstream news outlets in Europe and other countries, but not really in our country. As a harsh critic of US mainstream media, it was a bizarre turn of events that got me inside mainstream television news. Soon after founding FAIR, I started appearing uh, occasionally as a media critic uh, on CNN, which was then the only cable news channel. And then I started appearing more regularly and then they started paying me as a contributor. And then in 1996, they actually tested me to be the co-host of one of their biggest shows, which was their debate show called Crossfire. And during this process of testing uh, and hiring that went on for weeks, I co-hosted five different Crossfire shows. I was pulled aside by a top CNN executive 
who explained to me what CNN's concern was about hiring someone like me, that I would be too critical of the nightly sponsor of Crossfire at the time the nightly sponsor was General Electric, a company I was known to be a critic of. Uh, needless to say, I did not get that job. Uh, at FAIR, we had long criticized ad and, and exposed advertiser influence over news media, and here it was happening to me. I spent the next five years as a paid on-air commentator and debater on a new cable news channel, Fox News, owned by Rupert Murdoch. Uh, out of more than 100 paid contributors, I was one of two progressives, and that's what they called at Fox News fair and balanced. In 2002, I took a full-time job at the third of three cable news channels, MSNBC, run by NBC News. At the time, it was a corporate centrist and often censorial channel owned by General Electric. Today, though it's anti-Trump, it remains a corporate centrist channel and often censorial, now owned by the powerful communications uh, company known as Comcast. When Comcast lobbyists were working hand in glove with Trump's Federal Communications Commission to undermine net neutrality, to undermine an open internet, that activity was not covered on MSNBC. I worked at MSNBC as an on-air debater in every afternoon and also behind the scenes as a senior producer on what was generally the most watched program on that channel, the Phil Donahue Primetime Show. For those of you who are very young, you may not know, Phil Donahue uh, was a pioneer in daytime talk television. He had a huge show. He's the one who opened the door for Oprah Winfrey. Uh, my time at MSNBC was a time of crisis for the mainstream media as a whole. What was the crisis? It was during the run-up to the invasion of Iraq. The Bush White House kept putting out exaggeration after exaggeration, lie after lie, about the Iraqi threat. And it's the job of journalists to expose official deception. And that was the crisis. In mainstream outlets overseas, these deceptions, which were easily debunkable, were exposed almost as soon as they came out of the Bush-Cheney White House, but not in our country, where the New York Times front pages not only promoted these deceptions, but embellished them. And the same for the Washington Post uh, editorial pages. And television news was probably the worst culprit, fear-mongering, war preparation, war itself, are all great for building TV audience. At the Donahue show in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq, we tried to do independent journalism. We tried to be skeptical, as journalists are supposed to be, about what the Bush White House was saying. We tried to book experts who were beyond all the usual suspects from these hawkish think tanks. But the top network executives at MSNBC obstructed us time and time again. When we booked a, an ex-UN weapons inspector, an expert on weapons of mass destruction, who said accurately, it turns out, that Iraq represented no threat whatsoever, management insisted that we have a pro-war advocate to outshout him. 
At one point, we booked a former attorney general turned peace advocate, Ramsey Clark, who on our show eloquently pointed out that invasion of Iraq would be immoral, it would be illegal, it would kill many Iraqi civilians. And we were told the very next morning that we had totally screwed up, that Ramsey Clark is never supposed to appear on this channel. There was some sort of blacklist we hadn't been told about. And remember, this was 2002, not 1952, during the height of the Joe McCarthy uh, witch hunts. As the war came closer, management basically took over the primetime Phil Donahue show at MSNBC and imposed a quota system on us. Uh, they said, if we booked a guest who was opposed to the impending invasion of Iraq, we had to book two pro-war guests. If we booked two guests on the left, we had to book three guests on the right. At one meeting of all of the producers, and a producer somewhat excitedly said that she thought she could book the film filmmaker Michael Moore as a guest, and he was known as someone critical of war with Iraq. She was told for political balance, she would have to have three right-wingers to balance Michael Moore. After all this obstruction, three weeks before the invasion of Iraq, the Donahue show was simply terminated. You know, journalists are supposed to expose lies, not disseminate them. Management immediately told the press that the reason for the termination was simply disappointed, disappointing ratings. But the day after we were terminated, and God bless whistleblowers, someone at the high level of NBC News got a hold of internal NBC memos and leaked them uh, to a blogger. And these internal memos showed that NBC's objection to our show were purely political. We were simply too skeptical about war with Iraq. One NBC memo said, quote, Donahue represents a difficult public face for NBC in a time of war. He seems to delight in presenting guests who are anti-war, anti-Bush, and skeptical of the administration's motives, unquote. Gee, I thought the job of journalists, the mission of journalists in a free society, was to be skeptical of the powers that be. Uh, the, this memo went on to express management's fear that Donahue would be, and I'm quoting, a home for the liberal anti-war agenda at the same time that our competitors are waving the flag at every opportunity, unquote. During this period, MSNBC tried to outfox Fox. After they terminated the Donahue show, they picked up the flag. And what we learned in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq is that when journalists are so busy waving flags, they sometimes don't have the energy to ask the tough questions before our young men and women are sent overseas to kill or be killed. Within months, when the Iraq occupation turned into a quagmire, when no weapons of mass destruction were found, the Donahue show was completely vindicated by events. What we were trying to do was completely vindicated, but most of us were never rehired in mainstream media. Phil Donahue was not rehired. While those in the mainstream media who got their facts and their analysis completely wrong, and that was 95% of mainstream media journalists, many of them saw their careers promote upward. You know, you hear from a lot of political leaders some academics, especially conservatives, that we should have a meritocracy where 
uh, you promote upward uh, based on your individual achievement, your accomplishments, your performance. What I saw in corporate news media is they have the opposite of that. Uh, there's a word for it, it's called cacistocracy. It literally means rule by the worst. It's where the people that have uh, the least competent, the least suitable, see their careers promote upward. I saw that up close. From inside mainstream media, I learned that these media organizations were strict corporate hierarchies. There are, of course, decent ethical journalists throughout, uh, but the decision-making and the hiring power is at the top. It's with these news executives who are hired by the media conglomerates. And those top executives are very good at enforcing discipline on any journalist who might stray. And when a show like Phil Donahue's primetime show is terminated and we're fired, it sends a message to those media employees that retain their jobs, a message of conformity. What I saw inside television news was not just political censorship, but I want to talk about a more subtle commercial pressure that can influence or deform mainstream news. As a senior producer at MSNBC, I learned that while pumping up the audience ratings, the audience numbers was important, even more important was pumping up the demo. The demo are viewers age 25 to 54. The demo is defined as viewers, quote, young enough to change their buying habits, old enough to have disposable incomes, unquote. It's because of the power of corporate advertisers over uh, that television executives strive to attract these sought after viewers in the demo. And it wasn't until about a decade after I'd been banished from mainstream media that I began reflecting back on the demo. And it, would be, it was because the Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders uh, was making his first run for president with all these youthful uh, supporters, voters, volunteers. And mainstream uh, media pollsters started asking the public, do you have a favorable or an unfavorable view of socialism? And to the US public, I can only guess that they equated socialism, their interpretation of socialism is what Bernie's for, and maybe later what AOC and a couple others are for. But lo and behold, in so many of these mainstream media polls, then and since, much of the public under 35, under 40, has a very favorable view towards socialism. And this brings me to one of the myths of capitalism. It's this tale that consumers are actually in charge, uh, that the capitalists will trip over each other in competition to meet consumer demand, to meet consumer wants, consumer needs. Needless to say, at MSNBC or NBC News owned by Comcast, or ABC News owned by Disney, or Fox News owned by Rupert Murdoch, or any of these other places, when they discovered through mainstream media polls that millions of young viewers, potential young viewers in the demo, had this quite favorable view uh, toward socialism, they didn't go out and hire a bunch of TV anchors and TV commentators who were pro-socialist. Not a single one was hired. I look at MSNBC every day, every night. I see more Republican pundits 
than I see pundits who are strongly pro-Bernie. The lesson here, and this is what I saw inside uh, mainstream television news, is that while audience numbers and the demo are important, even more important usually is news content that does not offend powerful corporate interests. In most electoral democracies across the globe, not just ours, there's way too much corporate control, corporate dominance of news media. But in other countries, they have well-funded, very powerful public broadcasting channels, often the most watched channels in European countries are public broadcasting with either no commercials or, or very strong limits on commercials. And unlike these other countries with the strong public broadcasting in our country, broadcasting and television from the beginning has been dominated by commercialism, by corporate owners, by corporate advertisers with very weak and unfortunately often timid public broadcasting. Just compare how much money, how much tax money per person per year uh, goes to public broadcasting in various countries. In Germany, about $140 per person per year tax money goes to public broadcast. Scandinavian countries, it averages about $100 per person. In Britain, largely the BBC, it's about $80 per person. Japan and Spain, it's about $55. Canada, largely the CBC, it's only $27 per person. What is it in our country per person per year in tax money that goes to public broadcasting? It's $3 per person. And into that vacuum, corporate sponsors that are euphemistically called corporate underwriters have often stepped in. And they too often decide which programs go on the air, which programs stay on the air, and which programs fail. It's what we call the privatization of public television. Given my experiences inside mainstream news during the first years of the so-called war on terror, it's been truly strange for me personally to see the mainstream U.S. news coverage of Russia's horrific invasion of Ukraine. Every day in Ukraine coverage, there is a focus, an all-out heart-rending focus on the civilian victims of that war, as there should be in news coverage of all warfare. But when the U.S. military was invading countries, civilian victims of the U.S. war were generally off limits, and everyone in our newsrooms knew that. Uh, soon after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan in 2001, CNN management issued these memos to all of its correspondents and anchors, and these memos that were never supposed to go public leaked out uh, to the Washington Post. Those memos are revealing and they're maddening because CNN executives were instructing their journalists to marginalize or excuse uh, the killing and maiming of Afghan civilians by the U.S. military. One of these memos instructed CNN anchors that if there ever was a reference to an Afghan civilian casualty of the U.S. invasion, they were to quickly intercede and announce, quote, these U.S. military actions are in response to a terrorist attack that killed close to 5,000 innocent people in the U.S., unquote. 
This was a few weeks after 9-11. Who'd forgotten that? This was right after the terror attacks, but it was mandatory. How do I know it was mandatory? Because the CNN memo that leaked out said, even though it may start sounding rote, it's important that we make this point each time, unquote. You're listening to Jeff Cohen, Break Up the Media Monopolies. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So jump from the CNN directives at the beginning of the U.S. war in Afghanistan to when the war was winding down 20 years later. Afghan civilian victims of the U.S. were still being erased. I was watching NBC Nightly News when they did their sum up. Uh, and it's anchored by Lester Holt, who I worked with at MSNBC. He's not one of the worst uh, journalists in television news. He's actually one of the better ones. But he gives this summing up on Afghanistan. He calls it America's longest war. And he provides one and only one casualty figure. He said 2,300 American deaths. No mention of the more than 70,000 Afghan civilians who had been killed. No mention of a recent United Nations study uh, that had found that because of the bombing from the air, more civilians in Afghanistan were being killed by the U.S. and its allies than by the horrible Taliban and its allies. The U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 was ushered in by shock and awe, which was one of the most ferocious aerial bombardments in history, killing large numbers of civilians that were largely invisible to the U.S. Uh, media audience. You could see them in other countries, mainstream media in Europe. You could certainly see them in Al Jazeera, which was broadcast throughout the Arab world. Our mainstream media continuously hailed, quote, surgical airstrikes. A New York Times editorial called the opening airstrike on Iraq, quote, a breathtaking example of coordination and precision, unquote. The LA Times headline, Bush opts for precise approach. And Bush appears to be applying force like a scalpel, unquote. I argue that you cannot do that kind of massive aerial bombardment and apply it like a scalpel. Uh, but that's what the LA Times was telling its readers. By contrast to that euphemistic language, we hear today that Russia engages in savage bombing more deadly attacks targeting civilians, more war crimes. And it's accurate. The Russian bombing and rocket attacks have been savage, and they've been deadly from day one to last night. In Ukraine, we've seen story after story, accurate, compelling, about Ukrainian women who have had to give birth as Bombs and rockets are falling in their neighborhoods. Well, I tend to believe that pregnant Iraqi women were not somehow magically able to put their births on hold as U.S. bombs and artillery shells were falling 
in their neighborhoods. We just did not hear their stories. As books by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman have shown in case after case, civilians killed by an enemy state, by a foe like Russia, are considered worthy victims, deserving of prominent coverage in US media. But civilians killed by the US or its allies, perhaps the civilians that have been killed for years in Yemen by Saudi Arabia with the help of the United States, those victims are often deemed unworthy victims, unworthy of coverage in US media. In my view, if the US public saw the civilian victims of the US war on terror, which is experienced in other countries as a war of terror, I believe this war might have ended many years ago. Something else was different when Russia invaded Ukraine. Our mainstream media discovered something called international law. And they repeatedly reported that it was a violation of international law for Russia to use force against the territorial integrity of another nation to cross another nation's borders. When the US crossed borders of Panama, Afghanistan, Iraq, it was also a violation of international law. Those invasions like Russia's invasion of Ukraine had no authority, no authorization from the United Nations Security Council. At FAIR, as each US invasion was contemplated or launched, we would provide to some of the biggest news outlets in the country information about international law, including articles from the United Nations Charter, uh, but we just couldn't get them to mention the phrase international law or violation of international law. And then there's this other mysterious thing that emerged when Russia invaded Ukraine, and it's called imperialism. Soon after the Ukraine invasion, I watched an MSNBC host indignantly, repeatedly denouncing what he called Russian imperialism. And as a lifelong foe of imperialism, I too was indignant that a powerful country like Russia was using force to try to impose its will on Ukraine. Uh, but I've never heard an MSNBC host denounce US imperialism. Indeed, the existence of something called US imperialism is so stubbornly denied by mainstream US media that the phrase doesn't appear in print in our country without scare quotes. This is something someone else believes. It certainly isn't a reality. The truth is that no country has come close to ours in the last 70 years in imposing its will and changing the leadership of foreign governments, usually for the worst. You can go from Iran, Guatemala, Congo, Chile. You could come up to 2009 when Obama was the president and Hillary Clinton was the secretary of state. And it was US policy that helped enable a violent military coup regime in Honduras helping it to replace the democratically elected government of that country. As soon as that military coup happened in Honduras, every, almost every government in our hemisphere immediately vehemently denounced the military coup, but not our government. In the rest of the Americas, that's what they refer to as US imperialism. This denialism 
about an imperial United States persists despite the fact that our country maintains more than 750 military bases today in nearly 80 foreign countries. Russia has 20 foreign bases in a half dozen countries. Our military budget dwarfs that of every single other country. It's more than 10 times bigger than Russia's military budget. And the US is by far the biggest exporter of military weapons throughout the world, including offering weapons and military training to 40 of the 50 most oppressive governments on earth. That should be a news story. Corporate centrist outlets, corporate liberal outlets, whatever you want to call them, from MSNBC to the New York Times, they often report on and criticize the domestic gun manufacturers and the NRA for flooding our nation with guns. But not so much regarding the US government and US weapons companies flooding the world, including dictatorships with military weaponry. I've never heard that discussion in mainstream media. Through either omission or obsession, our mainstream media have the ability to normalize the abnormal, to make the irrational seem like common sense. At the end of December of last year, President Biden signed a record-breaking $858 billion Pentagon budget. As usual, Congress allocated more money for the military, and about half of it goes to military contractors, these companies I've referred to a few times. They allocated more money than the generals had asked for. So most of the federal discretionary budget, that's the budget that's not Social Security or Medicare, it goes to the military. Is that rational? Should that be debated in media? The Department of Energy next year will spend $30 billion on nuclear weapons, including modernization, is what the word they use, and only $4 billion on renewable energy or energy efficiency. Given the climate crisis, these priorities should seem crazy, but not if you get your news from mainstream media, which generally ignores the United States nuclear arsenal. And if you wonder why other countries have universal health coverage and free or very inexpensive higher education, while in our country, we have tens of millions of people with no health coverage and millions of people deeply in debt simply because they went to college. A big explanation for this dichotomy, this difference, is our country's uniquely huge military budget, which diverts money away from money that could be going to health care, housing, environment, education. Why is the military budget so off limits? to mainstream media debate. I'm gonna wind down now by pointing out that so far this evening, I focused on prestige outlets, mainstream centrist outlets, or corporate liberal outlets, whatever you wanna call them. But I also monitor the growing right-wing media sector. Most Republicans don't get their news from the New York Times or CNN or NPR. Uh, but from corporate right-wing sources like Fox News Channel, Talk Radio, Breitbart, Newsmax, Steve Bannon's War Room, 
Charlie Kirk's television show, all of which I consume almost daily. These people also get fed a steady stream of fanciful but very scary conspiracies through so-called social media. So you have millions of people being bombarded daily by propaganda encouraging them to distrust actual journalists, to distrust democratic elections, to poo-poo the climate crisis, to not only fear, but to despise liberals, progressives, immigrants, Muslims, trans people, etc., with a growing number of Republicans telling mainstream media pollsters that they believe violence may be necessary to save the country. So you have right-wing media helping to drive this extremism. A giant step in building the right-wing media can be attributed to Democratic President Bill Clinton, who, working with top congressional Republicans, was able to shove through the very corrupt Telecommunications Act of 1996. It helped Rupert Murdoch build the Fox Empire. It helped Clear Channel, now iHeartRadio and other companies build conservative talk radio. It helped build the right-wing Sinclair Broadcast Group, which now owns or operates nearly 200 local TV stations nationwide. Uh, prior to Clinton's Telecommunication Act, one individual or company could only own a dozen television stations nationwide. They operate that many in Florida alone. And polls consistently show that the public finds local television news more trustworthy than other news sources. I can't explain it, I'm just reporting the polls. How the media over the decades has concentrated in fewer and fewer hands of bigger and bigger corporations is often projected by the media as sort of a natural process. This is what's inevitably going to happen. No, it happened because of corruption. It happened behind closed doors. The 1996 Telecommunications Act that did a lot to build the right-wing media was basically written by lobbyists for the telecommunications giants and the media giants for their own benefit. And, you know, I've been involved in politics and media for enough decades that I can remember going back years that there, there's always panaceas. There's social movements and advocates that say, if we just did this, our country would be back on track again. You know, I've often heard people say, and I tend to agree with this argument, if we just had campaign finance reform and, you know, the big corporations couldn't fund the campaigns and thereby so, have so much control over the politicians, uh, America would be great again. Uh, and you often hear from the right wing various panaceas. Uh, for years, I used to hear that America went to hell when the Supreme Court ruled that prayer in public schools was not constitutional. And so you always would hear people, if we just returned prayer to the public schools, America would be great again. Well, I've heard all of these arguments over the decades. Here's one argument I've never heard. If we could just move from where one individual is only allowed to own a half dozen television stations across the country, a half dozen AM stations, a half dozen FM stations, we just remove those caps 
So one individual could own, or one company, 200 television stations. Or in the case of Clear Channel, right after this act went into effect, 1,200 radio stations. Gee, America would be great again. Public advocacy of that position has never happened because it's a crazy position. And when you know that there's something that cannot be uttered because people right, left, and center would not stand for it, giving all this media and public opinion shaping power to one company to own all of these stations, no one would stand for it. And yet, beginning in the late 70s, early 80s, especially with Reagan, this is what's happened. And it's happened behind closed doors in corrupt ways. I was very active trying to stop the telecommunications bill from becoming law. The Media Watch organization, FAIR, was part of a coalition that was organizing to try to stop this thing. And a consumer uh, group was able to raise money to pay for an ad on CNN saying that this telecommunications bill, if it becomes law, is going to be horrible for consumers and it's going to allow all this media concentration. CNN would not take their money. CNN, which takes money for almost any kind of a political ad, wouldn't run that one. And uh, these, these consumer groups were referring to the telecommunications bill as the Time Warner Enrichment Act, which is what it was. And what's ironic is shortly after Bill Clinton signed this bill into law, Time Warner, the, I think it was the biggest conglomerate at the time, it then took over Turner Broadcasting and CNN. And this is 1996-97. And then in 2004, Ted Turner, who was sort of a mad genius that started CNN, he wrote an essay denouncing the conglomeration of the U.S. news media and the censorship that media concentration leads to. And according to Ted Turner, he tried to get his essay published in mainstream dailies, but none would take it. If you want to look it up, you could probably find it online. He ended up publishing it in the very much smaller Washington Monthly magazine. I'll finish up with some good news in the US media realm. And that's that for two decades, thanks in part to the internet, we've seen the growth of independent, non-conglomerated outlets. These often underfunded independent outlets, they may not focus much on the British royal family or on the Kardashians, but without corporate owners and corporate sponsors, they're able not only to investigate the biggest stories in the country, but to investigate the most powerful economic interests in our society. Here in uh, Gainesville, you can hear Democracy Now! on low power, WGOTFM. If you add together the national audiences of Democracy Now!, TheIntercept.com, TheNation.com, Salon.com, Truthout.org, CommonDreams.org, Alternative Radio, and dozens of others, for the first time in our country's history, millions of people have access every day to journalistically serious, non-corporate news. These outlets don't have huge marketing budgets. So it's up to those of us who know about these outlets, including local community radio, to support them financially and 
uh, to use our email, use our social media, use our word of mouth to spread the word about them. I'm going to stop here and take your questions. Yeah, I'll repeat the question. Some of us who watched the Super Bowl noticed uh, they should go into one of these luxury booths and Elon Musk was sitting next to Rupert Murdoch, two media moguls, billionaires. And billionaires have increasingly been buying up the media. What does that say about the state we're in and the need for independent journalism? One thing that's happening, and there's a new documentary coming out called Stripped for Parts, and it shows how private equity companies have been buying up newspapers and wrecking them across the country. And one thing that major dailies or even minor dailies have always owned is a big piece of real estate in downtown. And so these private equity firms buy up these, uh, tele these newspapers, uh, sell them, lay off the journalists, and keep the real estate. And so there's no doubt that what the billionaires and uh, corporate concentration, how it's ruined industry after industry in our country, it's made industry after industry less competitive. Well, media is one of those industries. And it's one of the more important industries. Because if you don't have a free media, you can't have a democracy. Yes, uh, great question. Uh, given the state of the media, what path do I suggest to young journalists? Uh, I taught for 10 years in the journalism department of Ithaca College from 2008 to 2018. And that's newspapers were in free fall. And uh, my specialty in the class that I taught every semester was independent media. And what we discussed in that class is that some of these independent outlets are paying decent salaries. Maybe not what you'd get at the New York Times or NBC News, but they're paying decent salaries. If I was starting out in journalism today, that's where I'd want to work. Yeah. Uh, the question is a simple one with a lot of information that the local newspaper here used to have a lot of reporters covering this metropolitan area and was taken over, now owned by Gannett, which is owned by Alden Capital, which is owned by, uh, you're saying, some firm in Japan. This is what's wrong with corporate capitalism. You know, you can't have a free society. You can't have a democracy without free media, without an informed public. I mean, those two things go together. If there isn't an informed electorate, you can't have democracy. And our media system just keeps shrinking. We have all these places that are information deserts. They're media deserts. Bob McChesney, the great media scholar, he's pointed out that in other countries, newspapers were not as devastated by the internet as our country. That in, uh, in our country, prior to the coming of the internet, which took away so much of the advertising, Facebook, Google, took away advertising from a traditional legacy media. But before that happened, because of Gannett, because of the chaining of the newspapers that was already allowed to go on here, because of neoliberalism and the failure to enforce antitrust laws going back to the 80s. Newspapers used to be profit centers. If you had a newspaper, it was like a license to print money. 
right before the internet, the uh, people that own newspapers like Gannett, and they own dozens and dozens of them, they were demanding a 20% return on investment, which is huge. And so, as many have pointed out, especially Bob McChesney and other media historians, media scholars, it's because of corporate greed and corporate consolidation that newspapers in this country could not withstand the advent of the internet. And it's been withstood better in other countries. Uh, so, I mean, part of it is we haven't had antitrust enforcement in this country. And the media have been allowed to concentrate and concentrate. It's what I talked about, that corrupt policy where these things happen behind closed doors. The lobbyists write the rules. The lobbyists write the laws. And, uh, and we ended up with the media system that we have, which is a nightmare. And it feeds the right-wing conspiracies that motivate so many people, including those who uh, rioted at the Capitol on January 6th. Yes, the good question. This questioner is very familiar with some of these national news outlets. Is there a model for a local independent news outlet? There's a lot of knowledge sharing by independent news websites that are covering City Hall in their place, covering the school board in their place. It's often just two or three journalists. Uh, many of them are refugees from the mainstream daily in town who lost their jobs. And they've started these websites. Some of them have broken big stories. Some of them have brought down politicians. In Minnesota, it's called the Min Post. There's some in small towns. So, I mean, the way around the need for millions and millions of dollars is to utilize the internet, not only for researching the news, but for distributing your content through an exciting uh, uh, website that isn't overly expensive. But yeah, if you go look for in independent nonprofit local websites, you'll find them in cities and towns, especially in some college towns. The policy options, the policy knowledge is there. You break up the media conglomerates. You go back to the old rules where one individual or company can only own, say, five FM, five AM, and five TV stations across the whole country. You make sure there's women ownership, people of color ownership. And then you create something we've never had in our country, but they have it in other countries. You remember I gave out the dollar amounts for how much public money, tax money, goes to public broadcast. We need to create something new in this country called independent public broadcasting. We need a public trust fund for public broadcasting. We need people to be able to divert tax money to independent nonprofit journalism. We need to break up the monopolies. And then we'd have a mixed media system, different kinds of media outlets, and we might have an informed electorate, and we might save democracy. You were just listening to Jeff Cohen, Break Up the Media Monopolies. He spoke in mid-February. Jeff Cohen, a leading media critic, is the founder of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're an independent progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Medea Benjamin, Angela Davis, Juan Gonzalez, Michael Parenti, Chris Hedges, and Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. 
and we have a series of programs with Ben Bagdikian. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Jeff Cohen, Break Up the Media Monopolies, and for Noam Chomsky's book, Notes on Resistance, just call us 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to the Civic Media Center in Gainesville, Florida. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening.